Hello and welcome to another episode of The Deal Flow Show. I'm J.P. Maroney, your host, along with my partner in crime here, Mr. Paul Nicolini. And um, we're, we're excited. We've got a guest on the show that I believe our team first connected with in LinkedIn. Isn't that right? And yes. um, found out a little bit about what you guys were doing and thought that it was really good that y'all could come on The Deal Flow Show, share from your storehouse of knowledge some of the things that you've learned, Jack, over the years as well as to be able to talk about some of the deals that y'all might be working on, how you put things together, your due diligence process, understanding that we're both going to talk about the opportunities that you're involved in now and, and share of your knowledge and the information that we're using or giving in this show will also be part of a new book that we have coming out called Dealmakers, Dealbreakers. So uh, excited to be able to tap into the years of experience that you have and put this together. So we have Jack Albin on the show from Crescent Capital. And um, I'm going to let you lead off this time and you ask all the big questions. Well, we can start with the loaded one. How'd you get started in the business? Well, Paul, I got started in the business in uh, 1982. I was a math and computer major and learned that the mutual fund companies in Boston, the, um, the Putnam, Scudders, uh, I ended up at Keystone, would not only pay for uh, your business school, but they buy you your books and everything. So I started at Keystone as a quantitative analyst. You know, my job at the time was to help uh, analysts and portfolio managers take those green ledger sheets they had with their cash flow models and transition them onto spreadsheets. Those days it was VisitCalc and Lotus123. Now that's how I got started in the investment business. Lotus123, <laughs> I, haven't heard, those, somebody. Yeah, nice. I haven't heard those terms in a while. Um, talk a little bit about the work that y'all do today at Crescent Capital, what sort of deals you're working on. Sure, so you know our clientele is primarily entrepreneurs, business owners, first generation wealth, typically have uh, either engaged you know, in their business and have potentially sold their business, maybe sold a piece of their business, um, and then have now moved from managing a, a, a privately held, closely held business to now managing uh, capital, um, which is a very different experience. As you know from entrepreneurs, they're generally control freaks. Uh, they believe that they have a sense of um, their own destiny. Uh, they can always make tactical changes to the business to accommodate whatever challenges lie ahead. And then once they end up with just a pool of, uh, of capital, uh, they feel completely helpless. So our job is really to take that capital and to harness it in a very similar way they see, than they see their business. And what we do is we just start by building their own customized defined benefit program. They say, what, I, you know, first question is, what do you need from this portfolio every year for the next 40 years? And let's allocate that, let's dedicate uh, assets to that. And then we've got money left over uh, to do longer dated stuff. Um, our, our team, there are four original partners. Two of our partners are private equity professionals and, um, and, and myself and another partner came from the uh, private banking and investment world. 
Well, I would have to agree with you that A, AKA we entrepreneurs after 30 years of building companies are control freaks. So you got it, absolutely. Uh, quick question, so we have a lot of folks that watch the Deal Flow Show, listen to the Deal Flow Show that are at different phases of their businesses and certainly many of them will be either coming up on or right in the middle of an exit as you were talking about where now they've got capital, a uh, pool of capital. What are some of the things that they should be thinking about as they're putting together a deal team for the next phase of their business career, more going into the allocation process as opposed to operating company? Sure. I mean, we tend, because, you know, we come from a uh, history of entrepreneurship and we have a whole uh, ecosystem of business owners, um, we can offer a variety of advice, not just, you know, who are the best um, bankers to use in their particular business, perhaps how to structure a deal, um, maybe um, uh, also structure the entity in which the, the, um, the deal is held and then subsequently sold. Perhaps if you want to get, uh, you know, create a succession plan to get the, the next generation involved in the business. Um, so we have a lot of experience with that. And then what your domicile is. I mean, you know, do you really want to sell your business in California um, only to find out that, you know, you owe the state, you know, an additional 13%. Or would you, you know, potentially relocate to Nevada, Texas, Florida, um, you know, somewhere else where perhaps the tax burden is a little bit less? So those are the kinds of things we try to, um, you know, capture pre-deal, um, you know, pre-close, uh, and then of course helping uh, manage liquidity once it comes in. In the best of all worlds, how early are you coming into the process pre pre-exit? Yeah, um, we, you know, just because we're, we are engaged with a number of uh, bankers, um, they tend to bring us in um, you know, because, you know, they, they have uh, a, an interest in making sure that not only is the deal successful, but their clients are, um, you know, achieve what they hope to achieve and on an after-tax basis get what they're hoping to achieve. So we really look at it from a tax perspective uh, a family governance perspective, uh, and of course, uh, financial planning perspective as well. So we, we, we often um, get uh, invited early on, and then um, we also come in after, the, after the, the deal has been closed as well. So just a, you know, different, different variations. That's great. Um, Crescent started in 2017, I think we said on a previous call and now you've got over eight offices. That's pretty impressive growth. Can you explain uh, how that uh, transition is from, from startup to now? Yeah, um, you know, so we, yeah, we, we've just uh, surpassed the $11 billion mark. Uh, and out of that 11 billion, two, no, 3 billion of it is acquired. So we did, we've made three acquisitions, uh, two relatively small ones. Um, uh, two $500 million assets under management businesses, and then one $2 billion assets under management business earlier this year. Um, but, you know, really, um, the, the rest is, you know, $9 billion is is organic. And it, it's certainly impressive growth over the last two and a half, three years. Uh, and we're on track to bring in another billion of uh, of assets organically this year. So I think what we're doing is, you know, we're, we've got a compelling story. We are now among the top 25 uh, largest RIAs in the country. We're the largest uh, RIA in Illinois. 
And we're now competing head to head with the bulge bracket banks where we have a lot more flexibility and a lot and access to private investments, direct private investments, not, you know, fund to funds and too far away removed from the actual investment itself. That, that's a, so that's a good lead into the question that I was going to ask you about allocations. When we come back, we'll talk about that. If you're watching or listening to this episode of The Deal Flow Show, you can get access to our previous episodes, our archives, and also subscribe and follow us for future episodes at thedealflowshow.com. That's the dealflowshow.com. Again, Jack Albin here from Crescent Capital. So you were talking about the amount of, number one, kudos for that much in assets under management since 2017. Um, further proof of what I keep saying, there's money running in the streets. You just got to figure out where to put your bucket. And a lot of people, you know, they just don't know where to put the bucket. So you guys have done an excellent job of attracting assets. What are y'all typically allocating to? What are y'all getting involved in? What kind of deal opportunities excite you today? Sure. So on the private side? Uh, let, let's talk about both, but let's start with private. Yeah. So, um, you know, we because we're running a um, goals-based investing strategy, in other words, we, we drive the desired cash flows for our clients, we have three primary strategies that we employ. Our first strategy we call diversified income is to design to, is designed to deliver cash flows from overnight to seven years. Our growth strategy is to design to deliver cash flows from seven to 15 years. And then our aspirational strategy designed to deliver cash flows 15 years and beyond. Generally, um, we try to lock in our client's lifestyle, so to speak, with the first two with diversified income and growth. And then that leaves aspirational um, with what we call wealth surplus. So multi-generational, perhaps impact, charitable, uh, and whatever, you know, kind of desire and goal that family has for what we'll call the next generation or, or beyond the 15-year time horizon. Uh, what we look at is in our diversified income strategy, we're looking for income from a variety of sources. Obviously, on the public market sides, it's pretty limited. We're looking at, you know, pretty much bonds and preferred stock and things like that. Um, on the private side, we have a lot more flexibility. So we have a private credit vehicle where we're looking at things like litigation finance, life insurance settlements, music royalties, just trying to generate income from a variety of sources that don't seem to be you know, correlated with one another. We're also looking to launch a real estate income fund, again, for the diversified income strategy where we could be doing, you know, we would be doing uh, maybe some bridge financing and some other shorter-term equity um, holdings for um, high-quality real estate. So that's that's what we're doing in the diversified uh, income strategy. In our growth strategy, designed seven to 15 years, you know, we have uh, our own um, uh, private equity secondaries vehicle called Flowstone. Uh, so we're uh, in the market buying limited partnerships in the secondary market. Uh, and uh, delivering um, uh, those through a, um, a registered um, interval fund. Uh, and then we do direct deals. We, we have a relationship with um, West Monroe Capital, uh, West Monroe, the consulting company, and we, we have a partnership called West Monroe Capital, 
where we're finding original deal flow and doing direct deals um, that way. So we generally don't buy funds uh, or fund of funds. Uh, we're looking for direct investment in private opportunities. What's the check size typically, if you don't mind sharing? You know, so minimums for our clients, um, you know, we can do pieces as, as, as small as 100,000 uh, and we do it on a preferred fee basis because they're advisory clients. But I will say that we also um, offer our uh, vehicles to outside clients as well and other family offices. I should also mention we have, um, we launched one of the first qualified opportunity zone funds back in late 2018 when legislation was first uh, rolled out. Uh, we uh, raised 480 million in that fund and closed it. And now we're gonna look at starting fund. We're, we're, we're gathering assets for fund two. Are y'all doing anything with SPACs? We are considering it. We haven't done anything with SPACs, um, but one, it is a possibility because of our um, track record and history in private equity. Uh, we are considering perhaps raising a SPAC, but we haven't launched anything. I would think it would be an interesting dynamic where y'all have the obviously the capital, but you also have a pool of experienced operators that have exited where you could build a pretty incredible leadership team and or board for a, a SPAC and be able to go and do something pretty extraordinary in the market. That just seems like a natural. Yeah, I mean, we have just a really fantastic advisory board, uh, leaders of, uh, you know, companies from a variety of industries. And it's, a, it's, it's fascinating. We actually did our shareholder meeting last week and an advisory board meeting. And it was a, uh, there was a fun conversation with us pretty much an all day meeting, but it was, uh, it was really engaging. I think it'd be interesting, and I don't know if y'all, I know y'all have video capabilities because you had a guy helping there in the, the beginning. Have y'all tapped into the knowledge of all of this breadth, breadth of experience and captured it in any, any kind of educational pieces? Um, we haven't, um, you know, we have done webcasts and, and links for our clients. In fact, I was just on one, uh, that we try to do every other week. Uh, this one was more market oriented, uh, but we can also get uh, other parts of our uh, leadership team. Um, you know, for example, for some reason we have um, a whole cadre of former uh, auto dealers. You know, these are these are families that have owned uh, franchises of auto dealerships throughout the country um, and have. Um, you know, maybe just because they know each other, they've, they've come on board. So we have a whole, so if, if, if uh, you know, we're looking for anything in auto or auto retail, uh, we have a, a huge wealth of uh, information and knowledge just on our advisory board. That's exciting. I love the ability to be able to tap into a brain trust like that. It's always made sense to me as Harbor City has talked about the next phase and where we grow in terms of acquisitions and private equity side to be able to bring those leaders of those businesses together to cross share and cross pollinate the things that are working and the things that have historically worked in a diverse number of different industries. I just love the ability to transplant great strategies and ideas from one industry to another. Good segue, because we were going to ask, what are some of your success drivers? 
Yeah, I th you know, I think uh, a lot of it is a very strong culture. Um, we know who we are and we know who we want to serve. Um, you know, so if you juxtapose, um, you know, Crescent against, you know, uh, a bulge bracket, private bank like a Northern Trust, a Bessemer, or, um, you know, JP Morgan, let's say, you know, think about it in terms of inherited wealth versus first generation originated wealth. And I think, you know, while I'm not going to, you know, sneeze at inherited wealth, um, we really don't cater to that, uh, you know, kind of client, partially because we like that hands-on uh, impact um, that our, our clients have. In fact, I should mention that 30% of our company is owned by our clients. Uh, the other 70% is owned by employees. So not only do our clients get really excited uh, or prospects get really excited uh, about, you know, participating in what we're doing, but they actually, you know, want to buy in and, um, and we, we allow them to do that. That's great. Uh, Jack, you're a prognosticator as well. I've seen you on CNBC. I'm sure some of our, most of our audience probably has too. Tell us about what you see in the capital markets today and more importantly, I guess, going forward, being that we're dragged through the mud here with COVID and the election year, what do you see in the short-term future of the markets? Sure. Um, so, you know, one of the things I noticed with this uh, tech downturn um, is a, a recognition that perhaps investors are starting to see light at the end of the tunnel. Um, it's, there's actually good news. You know, I'll, I'll ask you guys, and I'm sure you know the answer, um, you know, what's done better over the last six months, Amazon or Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines? Royal, Cari <laughs> Royal Caribbean for $500. <laughs> yeah. Royal Caribbean is up, is almost doubled the return of Amazon since the middle of March. Uh, and, and in fact, a lot of that boost uh, was since the end of July. And so, you know, when, when investors are jumping on, uh, on Royal Caribbean and moving away from Amazon, what that suggests to me is perhaps they're starting to see that light at the end of the tunnel, that maybe this vaccine is around the corner, that life will eventually get back uh, to normal, and that companies like um, uh, Royal Caribbean and others have, thanks to the Fed, have been able to raise debt and sustain themselves through this drought uh, and will come out the other side, not only alive, um, but probably pretty well positioned. So um, I view that as a rotation. I think because these, you know, the five tech, big five tech companies do re uh, represent 25% of the S&P 500, uh, it will look like a pullback, um, but it will actually be a broadening of, um, you know, a lot of the out of the way names that have not participated. In fact, Year to date, half the S&P 500 is either at zero or uh, in negative territory year to date. So I, I view it as a broadening, um, but we will see some choppiness around the election. We will see some uncertainty. Um, some of our clients want uh, hedges of their portfolio out to December. I can't blame them. Um, I'm, you know, I'm kind of agnostic, but uh, we can put option hedges. We don't buy structured notes. Um, we actually put the, um, the exchange traded options in place to do essentially the same thing without having to rely on, uh, you know, a Deutsche Bank as a counterparty. 
You talked about in the beginning your background or the beginning of your training as in quantitative analysis. I want to come back and piggyback off of that in just a moment. But if you're watching or listening to this episode of the Deal Flow Show, you can get access to our previous episodes as well as get access to our future episodes by following and subscribing to us at the Deal Flow Show. Dot com, the dillflowshow.com. Uh, we've got Jack Albin obviously on this episode from Crescent Capital. So you started from, you know, as an entrepreneur, I, I'm a gunslinger, right? So raised in a completely different environment. The environment you came up in, very numbers driven analysis and process and all of that. What is your process or analysis when y'all look at a fresh deal? How do you approach it? What are some of the steps that you walk through in that due diligence or evaluation process? Sure. Um, you know, really what, we're, what we want to do is look at it with the, cl the client in mind. So, you know, most of our clients are looking uh, not to hit a grand slam uh, or even a home run. I think they're looking for current income. They're looking for stability. They're looking for predictability. Um, so for us, we like middle market cash flowing deals. Uh, we'll also take, uh, we did take a minority position in the company using uh, convertible preferred. Um, so, you know, we're willing to give up that, you know, 25 to 30% IRR in exchange for, you know, 12 to 16% IRR with a stable predictable cash flow. Um, so for that, you know, for us, that's a home run. Um, we're also uh, right now not um, in too much of the venture capital business, um, not to say we'll never get there, um, but again, we're really looking for middle market, stable uh, operating businesses and, and, and real estate, um, you know, middle of the fairway stuff, with, and we take on low leverage. So from that perspective, that's, that's kind of what we're we're looking for. On our qualified opportunity zone, we've partnered with um, Larry Levy and Diversified, who, by the way, is a client and an advisory board member, uh, Ann Hines, uh, you know, top-notch developer, to build real uh, trophy properties all over the country, mostly multifamily uh, in opportunity zones. Uh, so those are the, the kinds of um, deals, uh, kinds of plays, you know, we're looking for. So um, it, it isn't to say we, we won't look at something opportunistic, but we're just not there yet. Jack, tell us, uh, with $11 billion under management, there's got to be undoubtedly a lot of ups and downs. How do you manage the downs? Yeah, so a lot of it is really just, you know, managing the market, managing expectations. So, uh, so for example, you know, our equity strategy is a, you know, seven-year minimum. So, We've designed our equity um, portfolio to have a 90% success rate in making money over a seven-year holding period. And if we, and every quarter, we look out seven years based on our new capital market assumptions. And if we cannot assure ourselves of a 90% success rate because maybe valuation's too high, then we will actually take risk off the table. In fact. We did that in the fourth quarter of 2019. We couldn't get to that 90% success rate number and, and actually entered uh, 2020 with 15 percentage points worth of cash. Um, so that helped us in the you know March 31 when we re-ran it and got back to that number. 
So that's how we do it on the growth side. It's all long-term, you know, and you know how it works. I mean, if you buy uh, the market today, you have maybe a 52, 53% chance of making money over a one day holding period, a 60 something percent chance of one year, 70% chance over five years, and you know, roughly 85% uh, over seven years. In a diversified equity mix, it's, it's over 90%. We do the same thing with our, uh, our income strategy too. We want a 95% success rate in a positive return over a three-year holding period. And we're willing to make those risk adjustments to make sure that happens. So it's all about delivering on the predictability, trying to harness predictability from what seems like an unpredictable market, especially as you said, you know, as we've said from these control freak entrepreneurs who want to know where every dollar is going and where it's coming from. You gave uh, some statistical information there. How much has that been affected, what you've probably been talking about for the last 20, 30 years, with this statistical, how it might look in 24 hours or a day, you know, versus uh, a week or a month or a year? How much of that has changed over the last three and a half years under the current administration? And how much of that has changed over the last, say, five, six months under COVID? Yeah, so um, a lot has changed. I mean, I would say as of maybe five years ago, that 90% success rate over seven years could have just been achieved by the S&P 500 by itself. Um, between five years and last year, uh, we had to diversify. We had to go to more of a, you know, a, a, an acqui, a, a total world portfolio to be able to get that 90%. Last year, it fell below 90 uh, we fell below 90, so we had to now take risk off the table. Um, as of March, uh, it popped back up above 90. We were able to add. You know, guys, I think we could be looking at the end of this month in September, that same statistic, we may be um, prompted to take money off the table again. Uh, I, I haven't run the numbers yet uh, because, uh, you know, we haven't calculated it, uh, but I suspect we will be uh, taking some of our risk off the table in our growth strategy in, in September 30th. Yeah, it, with low interest rates, higher volatility, and expected returns that are um, closer to the basement than the ceiling, um, it's a harder and harder uh, hurdle to achieve. I was, does the election come into play as well? It, no, no, uh, because we're looking seven years, it, it really doesn't. Um, right. The only way it would come into consideration is if, you know, by September 30, if the market was a lot cheaper and everyone's worried, um, you know, I will say, um, you know, one of the other things I look at is investor sentiment. Um, we, we track um, bulls and bears. Uh, and right now, uh, on a bullish and bearish uh, continuum, we're in the fourth percentile, one of the bottom decile of, of its historical range. And that's generally bullish one year hence. Um, when the market, when, when, when investors are so widespread bearish, um, their expectations are very low. And in a market where it's just a, you know, the reality of, uh, or the combination of reality and expectations, much better to have low expectations than high expectations. That's great. Jack, uh, when you're working with other people on a deal, we know there's a lot of moving parts and so forth. What are some of the deal breakers for you? Yeah, I mean, one of the things we do, which is a little bit different than a lot of other, um, you know, private equity deal investors, is we look from the top down. So, you know, what we want to do is figure out where 
a deal like that would fit uh, because we have certain parameters we're looking for. So for example, you know, if we're looking for income real estate in our diversified income strategy, one is we have to make sure we can get, you know, full, you know, full circle back uh, or at least a fair market value within seven years. Um, secondly, we, we ha it has to pay current income. Uh, and thirdly, it has to possess a volatility, uh, underlying volatility that's consistent with the risk parameters we have in that strategy. So in many respects, that's where the deal breaker is going to be. It's just that the parameters don't fit. Um, and the only other thing would be maybe too much leverage. Uh, you know, we want to be able to ride through downturns. We're willing, we, we're ready to hold forever. Uh, we don't buy a, a deal with an expectation of flipping it, uh, you know, over the next, uh, you know, three or five years. And that's really a huge difference from a lot of private equity fund investing where, you know, because of their economics, as soon as they acquire a deal, the shot clock starts. Uh, and the faster they can turn that thing around and flip it out, the better their deal economics are, even if it means uh, sacrificing uh, return for their limited partners. So for us, you know, we want to own it the way uh, a family would own uh, a deal. You know, we, we, we try to, what we're trying to do is create a family office environment and we're bringing it downscale uh, to clients of, you know, $10 million and, and even a little bit lower than that. You wrote the Wall Street bestseller, Reading Minds and Markets. I want to talk a little bit about that in just a moment. But if you're watching or listening to this episode of The Deal Flow Show, you can get access to our previous episodes, archives, as well as subscribe or follow us for future episodes by going to the thedealflowshow.com. We have Jack Albin on from Crescent Capital. Jack, um, you wrote this book. And we're all told, or at least advisors are always telling people, don't try to time the market or maybe read the market or something. But you wrote a book that says how to read minds and markets. What does that mean? Sure. So this was before I really latched on to um, goals-based investing. I was fascinated with this conundrum between the predictability, tranquility uh, that investors want from their lifestyle and yet it's funded by something so volatile and irrational and you know, just um, you know, obscured. Um, and so I had really spent most of my career trying to harness the uncertainty to deliver predictable results. And so Reading Minds and Markets was a way using macro risk adjustment to, to essentially take a 70-30 a portfolio but create the same downside risk as a 50-50 portfolio. And so I did that uh, with a firm that I, that I launched um, in uh, mid-1990s and then sold that to Harris Bank in 2000 and then came on board as their chief investment officer at Harris Bank BMO uh, from 2001 to 2017. Before then, I latched on to this new goals-based investing uh, that delivers really the, a combination of, of um, you know, diversification and holding period to deliver those predictable results. Have you found, this is kind of a sidebar question, but you wrote a book. You're obviously a recognized authority in the media. Have you found that the book 
opened doors or opportunities, led to opportunities that you may not have had otherwise. I heard a great quote the other day, I don't know if you've ever heard this quote, but it says, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And I think that my opinion is that a book, being an authority, can get you to certain deal tables that you may not have had access to before. How has that worked for you? I think, um, no, I think what it's done is it's offered a little credibility um, that, you know, I can, I can uh, you know, put my, um, you know, thinking down where my mouth is. Um, and, uh, you know, so I think I've, I've still had to get myself to the table, but I think having this book and also having, I was on the uh, faculty, I was in the finance department at Boston University School of Management. Um, so having an academic background gives me a little credibility uh, once I'm at the table. But I'm not sure it's created opportunities where they wouldn't have existed without, without that one. Uh, Jack, we've had a lot of great guests like yourself on the show. What kind of people would you like to connect with from our audience and our, our viewers and our, also our guests? Sure. I mean, I would say our ideal client is a, you know, uh, an entrepreneur, uh, someone that understands business, has appreciates uh, what it takes to actually build a business and grow a private business and, and the risks and all the sacrifices uh, involved with, um, you know, with that business. Uh, and, um, you know, talk to us. Um, you know, I think you'll find that we're all, I mean, I even, you know, like I said, I, my, I've had uh, started businesses myself. And, and I think that that allowed me to really sh see um, the the world through the eyes of many of our clients. So um, I, I would say reach out to us and, and connect because uh, we have a whole uh, ecosystem of really brilliant entrepreneurs and they're very excited about doing this. What is the best way for someone to get in touch with you or Crescent? Is it the website, email, what? Yeah, I would say let's, you know, I would just start with um, going to crescentcapital.com and, um, and you can reach out to us through that website. Um, if you'd like to send me an email, you're welcome to do that at uh, jablin, J-A-B-L-I-N, at crescentcapital.com. But, you know, the, 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 uh, the website's great, too, so e either way would be fine. Don't mean to catch you off guard, but we asked this to, to all our guests. Share with us something that otherwise the business community wouldn't know about you. Uh, I wrote a golf book also. Um, so nice. um, back before I had kids, I, so I had another entrepreneurial endeavor um, back when I was living in Boston. Uh, and uh, before I had kids, I partnered with a, a friend uh, and we wrote a a guide to golf in New England. It's called the New England Golf Guide. And uh, we loved it. Uh, it was a great way to be involved in the golf business. Uh, and we I've met a ton of fun people from that. Uh, got to go to the uh, the PGA show in Orlando. Um, it, was, it was just fun engaging with uh, uh, the golf world through, you know, kind of a business lens. Fantastic. That's great. That's great. Jack Albin, Crescent Capital, thanks for coming on the show. Once again, on behalf of my colleague here, Mr. Paul Nicolini, myself, J.P. Maroney, the team at Harbor City, and the Deal Flow Show, we really appreciate you coming on and look forward to 
seeing what comes from this, as I had mentioned before, we're going to be publishing a book called Dealmakers, Deal Breakers, and sharing a lot of the wisdom that we draw from the show. And we certainly would love to include quotes and information from that. Reach out to Jack at CrescentCapital.com, and we'll see you on another episode very soon of The Deal Flow Show. If you want to get access to more episodes, you can go to TheDealFlowShow.com. Take care, everybody. We'll see you soon. Thanks, Jack. For more episodes, visit thedealflowshow.com and subscribe.